Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 229 for December 31st, 2009. The Rational Rejection of Security Advice. Security Now is brought to you by the new voice-activated sync, featuring hands-free calling, music and podcast search, and turn-by-turn navigation. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRide.com. It's time for Security Now. This is the show where you will be protected, you will arm yourself against a sea of troubles, and by learning about security, perhaps end them, or at least prevent them. With a we will protect you whether you like it or not. <laughs> Our security guru. Actually, the topic of the show today is maybe whether you, maybe not. We'll it's true. Th- um, I, I, we have the title of, the, the, of today's show, The Rational Rejection of Security Advice. Mm. Why it is not necessarily, it is, in fact, the argument has been recently made that in terms of the actual economics of the cost of following advice versus the the cost of not following advice that it is cheaper just to ignore us and uh you know disconnect your ipod we shall find out shall find out i should say this is our our security guru steve gibson is here from grc.com as always host of 229 episodes now security now entering uh soon our newest our new decade (laughs) yes our this is our new year's eve episode um december 31st last presentation of 2009 well this is going to be interesting Uh, i think i'm the poster child for the rational rejection of security advice yes we'll have lots of examples actually of you know through the last four and a half years of you saying well how big a problem is that really (laughs) i don't want to do that i really don't i like scripting i need my scripting oh boy all right well we'll see it has been a quiet week since we last checked in with our listeners. Um, only two little bits of news. There's a new zero-day flaw that has been, a zero-day vulnerability has turned up in Microsoft's web server, IIS. And the security community is sort of at odds with itself about whether this is going to be a big deal or not. The problem, it turns out, is that if the web server is configured to allow uploads of things like images, like JPEGs, to an upload directory. And, for example, you would do that if you had a, um, uh, a web 2.0 site where you were allowing people to you know, like upload their photos or their thumbnails or, or, or whatever – um, like to forums or to, you know, photo posting sites and so forth. The problem is that there is some technology that protects executability by file extension. So, for example, you wouldn't want .asp, which is Microsoft's active server page technology, to be alive in an upload directory because 
a user could upload code, essentially active server page code, and it could be run. Mm. Well, it turns out that there's a little bit of a parsing, a file name parsing flaw. Um, if you were to upload malicious.asp semicolon dot jpg, that is essentially, you'd have the, the actual file name would end with jpeg, jpg, then it would get through the filters and the way, unfortunately, the way Microsoft's IIS current server currently parses, the semicolon would stop the file name parsing. So the server would see malicious.asp after it slipped under its defenses and execute the code. Um, now, Microsoft says this is only if you're poorly configured. Like, well, you have to yes. do a stupid job of configuring IIS. And th thus, the argument within the security community. Microsoft is saying not a big deal. Um, there are people who have said, oh, just wait. <laughs> I mean, there's enough IIS out there. Right. You know, there's enough targets. It's a target-rich environment that it right. only takes a few. And if exploitable, then this is really bad. So, and it, all, it also takes, um, you know, having an executable upload directory, which is really crazy. I mean, no... Yeah, you shouldn't have that. No sane webmaster would configure a server so that uploads of images and things that are supposed to not be executable would have execution rights. That's, how, that's how my server got hacked, by the way. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I had an open uh, f uh, directory that you could upload to, and the problem with PHP is it's executable. So all somebody had to do was upload a, a malicious PHP script, and then he could run it. And he found the open directory. And so that was my fault. Badly configured. I, I don't have those anymore. <laughs> well, and, and the point is that it's easy to do. Yeah. You, with all of the servers out there, all of the, you know, like, you know, w w one of the things that often happens is that a webmaster in trying to get stuff to work, like, you know, something's not working, his, his scripts aren't working, they'll quickly or, or temporarily make everything executable or writable just to sort of see if that's the problem, intending later to go in and re-restrict the rights. And, oops, what if they forget? You know, it's like they're so excited that they got it working, they then go off and, like, make sure it's working and do other things and forget that the way they got it working was to overly permit rights. I mean, it happens so easily. So... Anyway, it, it's expected that maybe a week or two from now, uh, Microsoft's next patch Tuesday will be January 12th. So there's some window of opportunity. If they patch this that quickly, they haven't had a lot of notice of this. So anyway, I just wanted to sort of put that on the radar. It may end up getting patched and nothing will happen. Or, you know, two weeks from now when we are again recording, because we're doing a, a double recording today, um, recording our our second uh, episode for next week, which will be episode 230. We're recording that also, since you're going to be off reporting on activities at CES. Yes, yes. And my only other little tidbit was I saw this and I said, yeah, well, we knew this was going to happen. Kindle's DRM has been cracked. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I'm glad about that. I don't like DRM in any, in any, in any situation. You know, I, I support Amazon. I support the Kindle. I carry it with me. I love it. Um, 
I recently rediscovered the Financial Times, which you know is the, you know the, something I enjoy because it's got a nice out of the U.S. perspective and it's well written and good reporting. Um, it turns out that when Amazon released a PC client, Kindle for PC, that was sort of the Achilles' heel because now. If this thing, this Amazon client is running on a PC, then all the very mature hacking tools come to bear. We've got disassemblers. We've got decompilers. We've got debuggers. We can single step. We can, you know, catch things mid-load. I mean, there's just a huge mature set of tools which, you know, don't exist for some random little piece of hardware with a funky e-ink screen but boy you bring the client into a pc environment and suddenly good luck keeping it protected and you know we've talked often about the fundamental impossibility of what amazon wants to do you want to give people something which they in the privacy of their own homes can decrypt and read so the device has to decrypt it to display it, just like DVDs, just like Blu-ray and HD DVDs. I mean, it doesn't matter how much huffing and puffing you do, it's going to get cracked because the, the device in the user's control has to be able to decrypt it. End of game. Yeah, you, so, the, the key is built in. You can't hide it. Yes, you has can, to be. Has to be. Yes. So... You know, what, what again, what Amazon's trying to do, just like the DVD guys, just like Blu-ray and HD and everything else that will quickly be cracked is fundamentally impossible. So, again, I, I you know, and, and as you said, you don't like DRM. We would argue that, you know, I don't want to steal anything, but it would be nice not in any way to be inconvenienced by DRM so that, you know, if a book that I buy, I want to read on a PC, what if I want to read it on two PCs or three PCs? And they're all mine, and I'm the only one going to read it. Well, you know, the DRM starts to get in your way. So anyway, um, it, there are two different people who are now claiming that they've cracked it in different ways. Um, some is, user, is it a practical thing, though? I mean, can you uh, now, you know, not, share your not, books? Not quite. No. Um, but it'll, you know, wait three days. Right. I mean, this is it's it doesn't over. take long. In fact, it, I'm um, surprised it took a year. There was um, actually apparently it didn't. There no. there were some, you know, some obscure scripts around that that now we're seeing reference to um, one user who was posting to the blog of one of these crackers. He wrote, I've been aching for someone to run to un DRM Kindle for PC. Um, th th this uh, story goes, he says. A few of my textbooks for this semester and next are only available on Kindle and DeadTree. <laughs> Whatever uh, Dead DeadTree is paper. Okay. Oh, God. That's it. what we call. That's what I, we uh, nouvelle digerati call yeah. things printed on paper. Got it. DeadTree. Uh, <laughs> he says, I have an e-ink reader already, not a Kindle. And so I don't want to be forced to buy a Kindle, but the $10 Kindle book is so much better than a $30 paper book. Not to mention, it's reflowable, and I can more easily make it fit my eSlicks screen. So he has an eSlick reader, which is a cute little thing from the Foxit people 
who of course are, are um, uh, a well-known alternative PDF group. Um, and so he'd like to be able to, you know, he's got content that is currently Kindle only, and he'd like to be able to read it on his, um, his non-Kindle reader. Of course, that's not what Amazon wants him to be able to do. So this is, you know, you know he's excited that, that this is on its way, and, and you can imagine people being excited for different reasons. So anyway, I wanted to put that on our listeners' radar. And finally, the what I thought was initially the brilliant tip of the year, but I'm a little less sure of that now, uh, this sort of in our errata category, um, I ran across this when I was pulling together the, the Q&A questions for next week's Q&A episode, which we'll, we'll be shortly recording. Um, Levi Stoll in Denver, Colorado, um, offers this cool-sounding suggestion for cleaning keyboards. He wrote, I've been catching up on Security Now podcasts after a busy year, and I heard Leo talking about washing his keyboards in the dishwasher. <laughs> that was a while ago, yeah. <laughs> I used to do this regularly. But there's a better way. Keycaps, it turns out, are not built to withstand the high heat of a dishwasher. Well, you don't have and, to use high heat, obviously. A good point. Yeah. And frequently warp as a result. I now fill a container with four to six denture cleaning tablets oh. and use just warm water. Add the keycaps, and a few minutes later, they come out all sparkly clean and disinfected. Thanks for the excellent podcast. I look forward to Security Now each and every week, even when I don't have time to keep up. So I thought that was interesting. Now, I did a little poking around thinking, okay, what what are denture cleaning tablets? Yeah, what, what are they? <laughs> they're fizzies. They're very aggressive. And, you know, you might put your keycaps in and they come out uh, all <laughs> without any writing on top of them. So um, I'm a little less sanguine about suggesting that to people apparently um retainer cleaning tablets are much gentler for example the, the, uh, i ran across some dialogues with people saying hey you know uh i've been using denture cleaning tablets to clean my jewelry and boy do they come out all sparkly and apparently it's yes but it also attacks gold and silver and weakens it and does bad things so it sounds like maybe those are on the, on the extreme end of the cleaning strength and uh but but it's been recommended that that retainer cleaning tablets are more mild and gentle so hmm. anyway I, I just thought that was sort of an interesting little you know uh, i mean we used to it's funny because uh, in the early days of tech tv for some reason the producers just loved the mouse and keyboard cleaning segments we did a dozen of them and you know we did, i mean it's like they're five dollars to buy a new mouse ten dollars for a new keyboard just buy a new one for crying out loud and you pry all the keycaps off. You have to take a picture first so you can put them back in the same place. Yeah, it's a lot of, yeah, because I wouldn't believe me. <laughs> it's easy. You think you know exactly where everything goes. But some of those keys are kind of uh, obscure. And, uh, and then, you know, it's painted, pry them off, painted, put them back on. I, you know, I put them in the dishwasher because it's quick and easy. If it doesn't work, big deal. I buy a new keyboard. Yeah. But I've watched this keyboard. The, tick, the trick, as long as we're talking about it, is you've got to let them dry. Don't be impatient to get it back in service. Give it a week on the edge, dripping. Ah, yes. Because if it's not dry, you're never. It's never going to work again. And so, and I'm not recommending people do this. Please don't write me a letter saying you rock my camera. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at mine, and it just they, they're you know, grungy. It is. It, it, and, and, and that's why. 
you want to dishwash it because just cleaning the keycaps is not just the keycaps. Yeah, I was going to say what, what's really bad is what sl- slips down in between them and collects over time. It's like what? It's like alien. Who knows what? Oh, yeah. Hairs. Oh, and yeah, it's microbial. And, it is. Yeah, yeah. and so. You can just yeah. imagine what's growing in there. And, uh, <laughs> and and the truth is, you know, in, in an environment like this where we share this keyboard, you know, I have, there's other people, you know, use this studio. It used to be my my desk. Now it's if, the studio. If the keyboard starts walking off by itself, mm. you know that it's it's time to... So this to, is the to, Apple aluminum. It washes very nicely. <laughs> I've done it twice. It'll probably corrode. But yeah, don't do it in the hot cycle. Yeah, I'm going to have to... I'm I, Actually, a project of mine coming up is to take the guts out of one of my keyboards because they draw so much power. They like the the house lights dim when I plug this thing in. <laughs> and because it's, you know, it's old school. It's more than 20 years old. I love it. It's clanky and wonderful, but it's a PS2 interface. And what I want is not only to have it give it a USB interface, but also somehow much less power consumption. And so I'm going to end up just taking all the guts out and do my own little keyboard scanner so that I can plug it into a laptop when I don't, when I'm not tied and tethered to AC power, and, and still have useful battery life. So, I'll, I'll spin off sideways and and get that done here one of these days. But I'm looking at this keyboard. It's like, oh, just it really does need it needs some attention. So, I'll get around to that. In the meantime, I got an interesting piece of mail uh, with a strange title that caught my eye: Spinrite cooks my bacon. <laughs> Uh, I certainly hope that's uh, not a new use of... uh, From (laughs) Philip Nordwall in Bellingham, Washington. He says, I just wanted to say thanks for your great program, Spinrite, as well as Security Now. I'm a systems manager for a computer science department, and we have been using Spinrite since the middle of 2008. We have been using it a couple of... we, We have used it a couple of times for data recovery on laptops issued to students. But more notably, we PXE boot 108 ah. machines wow. every quarter for a Spinrite preventative maintenance run. We have cameras in the labs. If you're interested in seeing 108 machines concurrently running Spinrite, just send me an email. Hearing all the testimonials for Spinrite, saving people's bacon... I decided that when I retire one of my home hard drives, I'm going to attempt to use Spinrite to cook my bacon Uh, via a heated drive. I thought you might get a kick out of Spinrite cooking bacon instead of saving it. Thanks for all your work, (laughs) Philip Nordwall. That's very funny. (laughs) Pixie is the pre-boot execution environment. Yes, um, which essentially allows... A lot of machines have now. Yes, and yeah. probably all new BIOSes do an, a way, basically, of booting over the net, and they've got it set up so that they have they've put together a bootable image of Spinrite, which is which allows them then Smart. to boot Spinrite over the LAN, and so you know not have to go running around individually booting them. I think that's very clever, yeah. and they run it monthly. They run it quarterly, just as preventative maintenance, so that the, none of those machines in the labs have trouble. And of course, every so often a student laptop does. He did also in his note, I, I removed it. Um, he gave me the licensing number and name because they have a site license so that they're cool. all up, up and up. That's a very affordable and effective way to use Spinrite, actually. That's clever. Yeah. yeah. My laptop has Pixie and it uses it for the pre-boot authentication with the uh, thumb 
or the, the, the fingerprint scan, right? So it pixies and then it runs this, you know, kind of primitive scanner program before your I can new, even access your it. Dell laptop. Yeah, right? yeah. Yep. And uh, that keeps the hard drive locked. Everything's locked unless you. Uh... I wonder though how. I mean, come on. How effective is that fingerprint scanner really? Can't you can't you can't you spoof it? Um, you know, it's funny. I'm I've been wondering, and so I have some of my fingerprints not registered. It never gets fooled by them, and I've got I've had two experiences of 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 in both cases women. I don't know if it's if it's a sexist fingerprint reader or not, but <laughs> um, women who cannot just cannot register on the thing. I don't know if it's that their they their ruffles don't have ridges or <laughs> or what is happening but but um a a gal that I have helped with security and set up I I, I chose a little Dell laptop for her and was getting getting her all tuned up and and set up a, a friend from Starbucks just she'll she's got kind of honking fingernails which may be part of the problem and she's she's about as computer illiterate as anyone could be, but she really cares about security. So she, it's very important to her that no one be able to access her computer. And and the problem with her fingerprint reader is she can't ever make it happy. And I mean, I, I've had her like do it on my on on the palm of my hand so I can see how hard she's she's pushing. And I've watched her do it. And what's so strange is like when she's trying to train it, she'll just stroke it and he'll say, eh, no, she'll do it again. Eh, no, you know, I'll do it once. And it says, oh, good swipe. You Dr. Know? Mom has a theory. Okay. Hand lotion. Tell your friend to stop using hand lotion. I and bet, I bet think that's I, it fills in the ridges. Okay. I bet you you don't use hand lotion, Steve. I'm just guessing. Oh, you're right about that. <laughs> I don't see you. I don't see <laughs> us, you know, putting on the hand lotion. But women all all the time, right? And uh, and um, Doctor Mom says what happens. You know, I imagine what these things are doing is they 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 see the bumps and ridges, right? They're bouncing a light off of it. It's almost like a CD reader. I think that's actually ridges, but for, in a different technology. I believe they're capacitive. Oh. And, and, and so once again, but there's a it, rhythm uh, to the whirls, how many ridges and how how close together and so forth. But if if your fingers were swollen up <laughs> with uh, emollients, maybe that would affect it. I don't know. Yeah. Well. Anyway, so my experience has been, if anything, these things are too too finicky yeah. and not permissive enough. And uh, now, MythBusters. And, and certainly- now, MythBusters is not a scientific you know show. A lot of people bring up stuff like this. They bring, oh, Mythbusters proved, and I, it's a TV show, folks. It's you know, it's 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 entertainment. It's not science. However, uh, they were able to spoof these fingerprint readers. They claim. Now the problem is that the technology has changed a lot. The early fingerprint readers, you could spoof them with Play-Doh. I was just going to say, um, there's a difference in reader technology. So the the as as I what I remember from the Mythbusters spoofing was that it was not the little strip reader like you and I have on our laptops. I've got them on all my ThinkPads and use them and like them. But rather, those were the full, you know, press your thumb on this plate kind of reader. And yes, those are easily spoofed. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I use it. I don't, it's one of those things where, you know, I still have a password too. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Why not? Yep. Hey, before we get into the media matter, which I'm really excited about, I think this is a great topic. The ra- you know, the rational rejection of security advice. Yes. 
some might say I'm irrational, but I'd like to hear you validate my crazy position. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, sync. Uh, we talk a lot about sync, as you know. This is the great technology that is in all Ford, Lincoln, or can be. I guess you don't have to have sync, but but if you're going to get a new Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury vehicle, you sure, I would recommend getting sync in it. This is the hands-free technology. Gives you hands-free calling. It pairs up with your phone. I think 15 or 20 different phones at any one time. Where you get in, you, you, you pick a primary. But I have I can get in with all three of my cell phones, and all three of them pair right up. I could play music from any one of them using A2DP through the stereo. So when I get in uh, and, and, the, and the car sees the, the uh, iPhone, it starts playing my audio book right away, picks it up where I left off. I love that. You have music and podcast search. It has a USB port. Every car should have a USB port. But then the USB port is, is, is hooked up to this Microsoft Sync. And it reads. It could be a Zune, an iPod. Uh, it works with the Droid. In fact, it'll work with a USB key or a hard drive. As long as it could see MP3s on there, it indexes them. And then you can call for them by name, by genre. You could say play next, play previous. You can even say play similar, which I love. You can make calls on your phone. You can play the music in the podcast. Oh, turn-by-turn navigation. Every one of them has GPS built in. Even without, it doesn't have, you don't have to get the big GPS screen. It tells you, turn left here, turn right there. It's great. It even knows about traffic using this incredible serious travel link technology. So it will reroute you if traffic is bad or warn you. Real-time traffic and weather, ski reports, five-day forecasts, sports scores. It'll read me the news from the New York Times. I could go on and on. I want you to, I want you to check it out. And, and, and I want to thank Sync because they're supporting our CES coverage live from Vegas. We'll be there January 6th through 10th. We're driving the Lincoln MK, MKT, I think it is, down with the Sync. So, so look for me and say, I want to see the Sync. And I'll, give you, I'll take you for a ride in the Lincoln, and you can check it out. Uh, and we are also going to be interviewing the CEO of Ford and the guy who's responsible for Sync to find out what their plans are for the future. I'm told some big announcements coming up at CES. So listen and watch live January 6th through 10th at live.twit.tv. We now have a Twit Live at CES feed. There'll be an audio and a video feed. The audio is up. We're waiting for Apple to approve the video. So you can go to iTunes and just search for Twit in iTunes in the podcast section, and you'll see the Twit Live at CES. Subscribe to that. You'll get all of our coverage. Dick Bartolo, Paul Therott, Ryan Block, Will Harris, Dr. Kiki. I will all be down there. We're going to have such a fun time covering not only the events all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but the parties on Wednesday and Thursday, too. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you, Sync, for supporting it. And if you want to know more about Sync, go to SyncMyRide.com or visit your Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealers and say, I want to test drive the Ford Sync, please. We thank them for their support of all of our shows. All right, tell me I'm not crazy. Frequently, I listen to you, Steve, and 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 I have to say, you know, I've been here for every show, except for yeah, yeah. except for the scariest one, which Alex Lindsay did. <laughs> the next week, he said, oh, "I'm never doing that show again. I'm scared." But I, I guess I'm used to it because I know how scary and dangerous it is out there. But I choose, I think, with with. Uh, you know, intelligent forethought. I choose what security measures to take and what not to take. Am I crazy? I don't think you are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, what happened was the thing that sort of put this on my radar is there's an annual, very small workshop, which is invitation only, very small and sort of intimate. 
um, called the New Security Paradigms Workshop. Um, the site is, not surprisingly, nspw.org, New Security Paradigms Workshop.org. Um, the most recent one was held um, September 8th through 11th of this year, 2009, at the Queen's College uh, in the University of, at the University of Oxford in the UK. And a paper was delivered by a Microsoft research researcher, Cormac Hurley, titled, So Long and No Thanks for the Externalities, <laughs> The Rational Rejection of Security Advice by Users. Now, to set this up a little bit, I'm going to, I want to read from the introduction page of the site because it gives you a sense for where the conference is oriented. Um, their introduction says NSPW's focus is on work that challenges the dominant approaches and perspectives in computer security. In the past, such challenges have taken the form of critiques of existing practice as well as novel, sometimes controversial, and often immature approaches to defending computer systems. By providing a forum for important security research that isn't suitable for mainstream security venues, NSPW aims to foster paradigm shifts in information security. In order to preserve the small, focused nature of the workshop, participation is limited to authors of accepted papers and conference organizers. As a computer security venue, NSPW is unique in format and highly interactive in nature. Each paper is typically the focus of 45 to 60 minutes of presentation and discussion. Authors are encouraged to present ideas that might be considered risky in some other forum, and all participants are charged with providing feedback in a constructive manner. So, you know, don't laugh at the guy when he's, you know, putting something out there that may be contrary to what you're used to hearing. The resulting intensive brainstorming has proven to be an excellent medium for furthering the development of these ideas. The final proceedings are published after the workshop, giving authors an opportunity to incorporate feedback from the workshop. The proceedings of NSPW are published by the ACM, a very well-known association of computing machinery. In 2009, we had papers on usable authentication, malware detection, file system access control, and secure routing. We had papers that challenged the foundations of security practice by questioning how we analyze and evaluate security problems. And here's the kicker. We even had a paper that argued that users were potentially right to ignore standard security advice. The full proceedings for 2009 and past years are available here. Enjoy. And so any listeners who are curious about other aspects of this, nspw.org has everything there. Click on Proceedings. There's a list of all prior years, 2009. There's a list of the papers from this year, and specifically this one by Cormac Hurley, which, which when I learned of it, it's, you know, a couple months ago, it's sort of just been in the back of my mind thinking, okay, um, the guy brings up some very good points that we have to discuss because there, there are issues which have always sort of been in the margins of 
our discussion, you know, and and Leo, as as you said, you're often sort of taking a, a bit of a contrarian position, saying, uh, wait a minute, you know, how big a problem is this really? So so uh Cormac takes a look at from the whole spectrum of of advice sort of stuff and these are you know not coincidentally here we are four and a half years into the podcast we've already covered everything (laughs) that pretty much that there is to cover but he looks at passwords threats from phishing Mm -hmm. and and certificate errors ssl warnings that users get and when when we talk about sort of the the economics of following advice well, obviously, we're not talking necessarily in dollars and cents, although in his paper, he does go into quantifying the cost in terms of like twice the minimum uh, uh, income of of a random person and over the course of a year, how much time would be spent in doing something versus what the cost would be to not doing something. So so the idea is in terms of economics, we mean like sort of in you know academic economics where where there is a not arguably a non-zero cost for following advice. And of course, a few weeks ago I talked about the conversation I overheard uh at, at Starbucks where there was this executive with his coworkers explaining to them the lengths he goes through to avoid the IT department's password policy. The, you know, his passwords expire at his company after not apparently very long, and he finds it very annoying that he's being asked to change his password constantly. So he's so determined that he knows better than the IT department about the safety or lack of this policy that he'll he'll he has like he'll go through five other passwords in a row in order to get back to a sixth one because the system remembers the last five and won't let him use any that he's used recently so they've got a they've got a password policy which they're attempting to enforce but in this case this guy believes he knows better that is the hassle that he's being put through the the the, the cost from an economic standpoint the cost to him of being forced to really change his password is far higher than than he believes the expense would be of of getting hacked getting hacked because over you know he's managed to to fight to hold on to the same password forever right, right. essentially well that makes so, sense if it's you know your access to your new york times page maybe not if it is to your bank. So different different sites have different values. Well, yes. And in fact, one of the things that I've noticed is I've seen websites where five years ago, Amazon is a perfect example. I've been an Amazon subs- member from like day two, the moment I heard about it. It's like, oh, this sounds wonderful. Yep. And, and I confess my first password was 
weaker than weak. But <laughs> back back then, at the dawn matter. of the net, it was like, eh, who, you know, there's, there's you and I and four other people were on the internet, Leo. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. You know, and I trust you. So, um, and besides, if you want to buy a book, that's fine with me. So, uh, when I don't, oh, I know what it was. It was when I was signing up for S3 stuff. Yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to mess with Jungle Disk and right. S3. And so I needed to sort of like refresh my account. And they, and I, you know, tried to just log on as me because Amazon already knew me and it said, oh, you, <laughs> you gotta be kidding. That's your password. Well, that's uh, good. That's good. And I, so, so what happened was over time, their policies change. Now, what, Probably, you know, if you if you peel back the covers, you can imagine that there were probably people getting hacked right. because there were people who had re- I mean, my password wasn't really bad compared to what it could have been. If I, if, and I, in fact, if I think about the absolute lack of enforcement, then people probably had a password of like X, mm-hmm. literally, you know, well, because- you saw I don't know if you saw, but Twitter just recently banned 300 passwords. Yes. They said you cannot create a Twitter account if you use sex, one, two, three, four, five, ASDFG, all of the obvious passwords. In fact, it's worth looking at that list of passwords just so you understand what a crappy password is. Well, and we also know that that was a consequence of Twitter being hacked. <laughs> Many times. Exactly. In fact, it's own people being hacked. And, and so, so my point, and this you just made my point for me, is that what must have happened is that Amazon was having problems with the fact that they weren't enforcing stronger passwords. And so they, they didn't retroactively sudden, su- suddenly surprise me one day and say, you can't use this anymore. Maybe they would have ha- if more time had gone by. But instead, when I you know attempted to do anything they, that gave them an oper- sort of an in, they said, uh, you know, we're not, we're not good with that anymore. So in terms of policy, we, and we've talked about all this before, we know that longer is better because it makes them less susceptible to brute force. We know that varied composition is better, upper and lower case, numbers and letters. We know that things that are not in the dictionary, you know, like the list that you were just running through, right. not simple words. But then there's other policy advice, like, you know, don't write it down. And we've talked about, for example, how Bruce Schneier takes issue with that, saying the problem with a don't write it down policy is that while writing it down exposes it to discovery, it encourages it to be weak. Right. Because if you can't write it down, you're going to choose something easier to remember. Not, not writing it down encourages weakness. Yes. Yes. Right. right. Exactly. So, so, and then, of course, don't share it with anyone is sort of obvious. Right. Then changing it often is the other you know, sort of standard policy is, oh, how long have you had that password? There's there, you know, you should change that. And it's, it's like, okay, obviously that's sort of common sense. And then finally, no reuse of passwords across sites. We, we have often talked about the, the, that it's better to have different passwords for different sites. The vulnerability obviously there being if, if it was, if, if some employee at one of those sites was went bad or if you got if a keylogger you know logged you in to one site it might say hey maybe this person or the employee might say maybe this person is using the same password everywhere else let's go see if we can log on 
with, you know, with their credentials in other places. So obviously not not reusing a password is a good policy. You know, I uh, I recently started using, and you've talked about this too. In fact, this is our recommendations, these password wallet programs where you kind of have the best of both worlds. You have, a, you store it. You, in fact, they'll even generate tough passwords for you. Store them. You have one master password, which you can remember. But so everything's protected, but you have different passwords for every site. So I started using one called, uh, which I love and I recommend called LastPass. I use it because it's cross-platform. But get this, they have, they obviously listen to this show. In fact, I'm going to say hello because they have two, two-factor authentication. One with YubiKey, works with YubiKey. They run a YubiKey server. The other with perfect paper passwords. No. Yes. You can print out exactly what you do, what you recommend, a, a sheet of paper for your second factor. You put in your wallet, cross nice. it off. It is it's as if they were listening to the show and try to design the perfect password storage system. I just love it. Oh, I'll, I'll check it out. Lastpass.com. It's free if you want the pro version. It's a buck a month. And uh, I've been using it, and I put it on every browser, on every system, Linux, Mac, Windows, it, Droid, iPhone, everywhere. It's really great. And they obviously are Steve Gibson fans. So, having run through what we all agree... From I mean, in fact, passwords were the first three or four episodes of our podcast oh, yeah. four and a half years ago. Oh, yeah, most important ha- thing, yeah. Having run through, and, and of course, this is what most people, you know, It's the first line of defense, yeah. When they're using, well, it, it's the first issue of security they encounter when right. they're on the internet today. Right. What, right. No matter what it is, email, you know, any kind of an online account, whatever. That That's the way we protect this. So backing away from this for a minute and, and taking an, okay, wait a minute. Uh, now, we're not talking about the listeners to this podcast. We're talking about our moms or, you know, girlfriends, boyfriends, you know, people who who are not listening to a security podcast because they're fascinated by the mechanisms and machinery and, I mean, are curious about what can go wrong, but users who just want to use the Internet. Someone who, who, who wants to be safe, who's aware that there are dangers, but, but isn't into it for the sake of being into it, but just, you know, wants to be okay. So here we give them all of this criteria. It's like, oh, well, here's what you have to do. And your password's got to be like this, and it's got to be like this, and you have to change it all the time. And you can't use the same one. I mean, at some point, they're like, whoa, hold on a second. I can't use, you're telling me I have to have a really fancy password with different upper and lower cases and numbers and letters mixed in. And I, and I can't write it down. And, and I have to change it often. And I can't use it in multiple places. And so, so if we, if we take the contrary position. It's like, okay, what's the likelihood of there being an exploit, of there being a problem with this? And and what what Cormac does in his paper is he he challenges this advice where, you know, not not saying, oh yes, it wouldn't be wonderful if everyone did this, but saying, what's the cost of doing it? And the and the point is the cost is not nothing. If I were to try to explain 
that to mom, the feedback I get from her as she rolls her eyes is, honey, um, well, I'm, just gonna unplug, I'm just going <laughs> to unplug the computer. Right, right. And so, so, so really, if we look at changing it often, okay, the, the, so what's the risk? The risk is that, that somewhere far in the past, our password would have been captured, but it wouldn't have been used until now. So, so the not changing it often creates a window of opportunity. But if the password is captured and immediately used, which is probably more likely, then changing your password often provides you no benefit. Right? Okay, let me because think about that. It would only be if you changed it like every few minutes. Right. That that someone would have to fit within a very small window in order to exploit the fact that you had had the same password. So so again, the changing and off and the argument against that is that most times the password is going to be captured and probably used quickly. So it doesn't really matter how long you've had the same password. It's only the the only place where that would matter would be if a year ago the password were captured and it hadn't been used until now. So that changing at any time in that year would have thwarted the attack. So you could say, okay, that's dumb. I mean, <laughs> changing it often is, a, first of all, a real pain because if you just got comfortable with it, it's like, you know, when I lose one of my credit cards because of online fraud, you know, it's like, oh, I had just memorized the darn thing and now I got to go memorize it again. So, so changing your password is, you know, is very expensive from a user argument and from, 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 from a user's cost. And it's not really clear. It's like, should you? Yes. What happens if you don't? Eh, probably not. Probably not a big problem. Because the, the nature of the attack is not using real old passwords. That just probably doesn't happen. Right. Now, how about the no reuse of passwords across sites? So, you know, we talked about what the what the cost there is or, or the, you know, the, the, the exploit is some sort of cross-site abuse where something sees your log on credentials something or someone a key logger or malware or a trojan or something or an employee in a, at, at a site that's you know a bad employee at, at, at a site sees your credentials and then specifically tries to reuse them on other sites could it happen yes um how likely is it uh one of the problems, and it's a really good point that Cormac brings up, is we don't know the answer to that to these things. We don't really, we in the security community, don't have real quantified research about the nature, the size of the risk. That's interesting. We're just assuming empirically. 
th- we it, theoretically, theoretically say this could happen. Right. <gasps> oh no! Right. It's like you know, no one can argue that it could happen. But the beautiful, like rational response to like of someone we're trying to like push too far is, and this is your response, Leo. Well, okay, how likely is that? Right. You know, well, you have so, to you have to have that information to weigh your response, right? You yeah, you absolutely do in order to in order to in order to know whether the cost of following the advice is worth the expense of not. Yeah. Now, um, he he raises another really good point in this whole domain of fishing, and you know, I, I I've talked often about how really annoyed I am that. You know, mom has to deal with URLs. Right. And, of course, phishing is, re- if you think about it, really tough to train a non-computer user about. First of all, we have to tell them, okay, IP numbers in the URL, those are probably bad. So, you know, if you click on something and it's, you know, 29.243.16.71, you know, to make up a random number, it's like, oh, you know, you can't tell anything about where you just went. So that's scary. Right. That's probably bad, except that they might see 192.168. Something that's something, you know, their, their local network IP could appear in various contexts when they're talking to their local um, machine or another machine on the LAN. So then it's not bad. So so that's confusing. And then we have the problem of a link, for example, in email that says www.paypal.com, but it but that's an that's an href, you know, in HTML where it's actually where the URL associated with what's visible. You're you know you're seeing www.paypal.com is a clickable link, but the href is, you know, www.drevil.com. So, so now we have to say to them, oh, well, you can't really, you can't trust what it says, what the link says. I was like, oh, what? Well, how can I ever click on anything? It's like, oh, no, you can't, you know, just don't. And then, <laughs> and then, then there's the problem of www.paypal.com. PAYPA1.com. Looks like PayPal to a cursory view, um, but it's the number one. And so we have to explain to them, okay, that's not the same. So, you know, look carefully, make sure every letter is what you expect, not something that looks similar. Oh, and by the way, www.paypal.ru, that's bad too. You know, that's there is no PayPal in Russia. Um, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to have a bad experience if you go to PayPal.ru. So then we have to explain to them that the com is important. Um, but then the next thing over, the the second level uh, domain name is really where you're going. Except there's Amazon.co.uk. That's good. But B of A dot CO dot UK, oh, that's bad. So, I mean, think about how incredibly confusing the 
you know, the knowledge of how to parse a URL. I mean, we all, the listeners of this podcast, take it for granted. We know how to read this. Oh, and another favorite of mine is if we tell them that you have to read from the right to the left, because, of course, URLs, you know, we have com as the top-level domain, and then the second-level domain is where you're going. So, for example, we explain that www.paypal.com dot dr evil.com <laughs> it's not the same that's bad too because <laughs> that's really dr evil.com right. and it's a machine down the the tree from him but Except, you're right we shouldn't have to have urls in fact tim berners lee said i never expected anybody to be using urls this was for machines not and humans. then and then I'll, I'll wrap this up but because if if then we they're presented with www.dr drevil.com slash www.paypal.com now they're thinking oh, oh good it's fine it's it's fine because it's paypal.com on yeah. the right that's what yeah. i care about no that's behind a slash so that's a directory of drevil.com and you're in trouble again yep so you know it's again, not commonly understood you and i and everybody listening to this show knows it but it's not I'm, common and i'm exhausted from just giving those examples <laughs> i know I mean, there's so many ways this can be wrong, and and we're trying to tell users, oh, check to make sure right. where you are. You cannot. I mean, it's yeah, not reasonable to tell where you are. And then I love the point that he makes about SSL certificates, which is virtually 100, and I know I just said the word virtually. I've been told, I've been told that I use the word too much. It's like, okay, that's the one I need right here. Virtually 100% of certificate errors are false positives. That is to say, if you what? think about there, first of all, phishing sites don't use certificates. So the only time you can get a certificate error is if there's a certificate in play and something's wrong. You don't get a certificate error on a non-SSL page. And phishing sites just don't bother with HTTPS. All the studies have shown that users don't look. Users don't understand the difference between what's the content of the page and what's on the browser window dressing, the so-called Chrome of the browser. Users don't understand that a lock showing on the page is different from a lock down right. in the tray or no, yeah. in the URL. I don't even know how you'd explain that to somebody. Exactly. Again, I, I, my model is my mom of like the person who wants to be poking around on the net and I wanted to keep her safe. And, you know, she's already signed off after like, you know, a minute of this. And yeah. and the other thing is, it's funny because, I mean, it, when I approach somebody who is a neophyte and they say to me, they ask me, okay, well, what do I need to do to be safe? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, there isn't an easy answer. The fact that I don't even know how to answer that question. Wise up. But that's not a good answer, you know? No, because, it, you know, here we are four and a half years into this and we're still talking about new stuff that, that's coming along. So, so on the SSL certificate, just to wrap that up, the, the point um, that, that Cormac makes very 
I mean, robustly is that that the only time you see certificate warnings is when, for example, a certificate is, is, is expired. Remember, not long ago, GRC's certificate expired. I was at Starbucks and someone sent me email right, saying, hey, right. Steve, uh, by the way, I hope you weren't. In fact, I was. I was spent. I was going to spend a whole day, you know, working offsite, and as I had to run home and solve the problem because my certificate expired, it just caught me unaware. And I've talked about how when I have seen errors, I've gone in and pursued them, and sure enough, without exception, the certificate expired a day or two before. And I know they're running around scrambling trying to get their new certificate issued. So, so over time, users see these sorts of problems like certificate errors and they, you know, I still sold Spinrite with an expired certificate because people had gotten used to it and thought, oh, well, you know, maybe they checked the certificate themselves and saw that it had expired at midnight four hours before, or maybe they're just already used to false positive certificate errors. But for whatever reason, studies have shown people ignore them. And and that in fact, they are right to do so. They're they're behaving rationally when when they do that. Because 99% of them are false positives. 0.999, I think, yes. And the point is that bad sites, phishing sites, just don't use SSL. So they don't have a problem. Right. Or in the <laughs> That's rare... a good point too, right? You don't see a certificate <laughs> error. Exactly. You can't get a certificate error if you're not <laughs> even trying to use one. <laughs> and the flip side is in the rare case that they have gone to the trouble of issuing certificates, they've also gone to the same trouble to make sure everything's correct. So, you know, for them, the, the correctness of their certificate is their whole life. I mean, this is the Paul part of the spoof that they're trying to pull. For me, I, you know, I've had certificates for years. It's a sort of an annoyance that I have to renew them every couple of years. So I'm not thinking about it the way somebody who's focused on valid certificate spoofing is thinking about it. For them, they're going to make sure nothing generates an error because that's all part of their campaign. So, so what happens is with all of this, for example, in the in the cat and mouse game with phishing, the original phishing hacks were, you know, numerical. So we told users, oh, don't trust numbers. Then, okay, people started, then, then the bad guys evolved to lookalike names, pay, P-A, P-A-Y-P-A-1.com. And, oh, now we tell users, oh, you got to look at the, you know, we know you, numbers are still bad, but now... Look, make sure that every character is correct. And then there was a next level of escalation. And we, you know, we ran through all the wacky ways that you can obfuscate a URL that's, that's visible to confuse users. And these are people who are, who've actually somehow been convinced that this is something they have to worry about. And, and so the argument is, What's the cost of just ignoring all of this? The fact is the written policies of all the banks are you're indemnified. If you notify us within a couple days of 
some problem, of you becoming aware of the problem, um, your maximum liability is $50 or zero. The policies vary, but in general, be- because the bank uh, or whatever financial institution is is wanting to encourage this internet use because it's good for them, it lowers their costs, it allows them to streamline and automate and outsource and all that, they're wanting to say, okay, we'll take responsibility for there being a problem. I mean, I've never paid anything when my credit card has leaked out onto the internet. You know, I get a call. They say, Steve, did you, you know, were you in a French uh, health spa I get that call a lot. <laughs> and it's like, uh, no, no. wasn't me. They go, okay, fine. Yeah. We're, we're going to cancel this card and we'll send you another get one. Get this one. Exactly. Jennifer calls me. Jennifer calls me. Uh, you know, every few weeks, saying QVC's on the line again. Uh, they say we bought you know eight hundred dollars worth of crap, and they're shipping it to Southern California, and uh, and they give the same credit card number every time, and it's one we haven't had in years. It was canceled years ago. Somebody continues to use it with our their address and our phone number, but the funny thing is QVC. I don't know why, but they they ship them the goods. It's like I'm not liable. I haven't used that credit card in years. Wow, that's that's <laughs> nuts. But I love it when I get the call because then I, you know, it's like, well, at least they're paying attention, I guess. But why are they shipping this stuff? <laughs> so, so what we have is a mess, and and with with the users being protected from the exploitation of of their identity now i i would argue that identity theft is something where you know we've all heard the horror stories of what happens when you know your your identity actually gets stolen and it's you know a big problem but even there if you if you do the math if you look at um apparently there are 180 million adult users of the internet in the united states and if you just on the back of a napkin, sketch out how much time out of everyone's day goes into scanning URLs and and fussing around with passwords per site and and password rules and 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 all of this overhead versus what's the expense to the user of not doing so. Uh, Cormac makes a a compelling case that all of this is just nonsense. Yeah, but you got to do something. Well, he and he and it's very clear that you know LastPass and what you're doing makes sense for you. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to checking it out myself because it sounds like a, a beautiful solution, one I can understand, and all of our listeners understand this. Mom doesn't. Yeah, you know that's a threshold. That is too high for her, and in fact, I recognize it when when I, when I talk to somebody who wants my advice, and you know, it isn't a security now listener or a candidate. You know, they're like they want like where's the trade off, and and the the perfect the perfect the perfect question for them to pose back to me is. Well, how likely is that? Yes. I mean, that stops me cold. Yes. Because all I have is the absolute knowledge that it's possible 
but I have no idea how likely it is. And and one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading this that Cormac did not discuss is one thing that we're lacking is positive feedback when something we do saves us. Oh, like that was a good thing to do. Yeah. Yes. We never get that. That's a good point. We don't, we don't, we're not, we don't get awarded for links we don't click in email. Right. We just know we can't click those. Right. But imagine if, if, you know, if you actually knew that had you clicked it, you'd have been in in bad shape. Well, that would positively encourage you. Similarly, you know, <laughs> nice job, Leo. You just good. avoided getting fished. Yeah, Woo. yeah. You know, here, you know, reality just split. Re- Leo clicks the link. Leo doesn't click the link. You know, look at the world. If Leo had clicked the link, oh my right. God! Right. You know, right. and and you know, I'm running with no script, so I'm blithely jumping around from site to site, but. Nothing is telling me, whoo, boy, <laughs> you just avoided a bad one right you gotta there. you got to have some positive reinforcement. That's key. You know, so, yeah. so you don't know what the scripts you don't execute would right. have done to right. you. Right. You And so, so one of the problems is that to, to, you know, we know listeners of the podcast whose shields are up, who are protected, who are using, you know, complex passwords who do look at URLs, who do scrutinize the links in the bottom. You know, these bad things are not happening to us. But but still, we don't, there, there is no system that tells us what horrors we avoided by behaving ourselves well. So one of the things that is missing, I think, is, is positive feedback for our good behavior. I mean, we're still going to be on good behavior because we understand the right. consequences. Right. But I do have a friend who is long-winded about answering questions. And <laughs> I've where whereas where whereas I sort of I I know just, your friend. I think I've had dinner with him. Yes, you. <laughs> you didn't have to say more than that. <laughs> and I've watched people ask him this sort of question. Well, you know, what do I really need to do? And half an hour later, you know, when they start to snore, um, he's like, well, okay, I'll finish this after you're awake. <laughs> um, and, and the fact is, it's just not practical to, to explain to most people. But the question is, why? It's because it isn't worth it. And, and most users get that intuitively. You know, we like security for its own sake because it's fun, it's interesting, it's 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 got mechanisms, it's got good guys and bad guys, and we do know we're very conscious of what could happen. We hear about them all, you know, these actually things happening to people all the time too. But most users make a different purely economic based, you know, not this is, for us it's a hobby. Most people don't want to mess with this. They just want to get on with their life. They make an economic judgment which says, okay, I, I know that some people, I've even had friends that have gotten viruses and they don't know what they did. I don't know what they did. I'm This all makes me very uncomfortable, but I'm just going to push on and hope for the best because I asked somebody once what, what I should do and I just glazed over because I couldn't understand <laughs> 
you know, half of what he was But saying. we need simple, uh, we need maybe, I don't know who's going to do this or even if it's doable, but we need some sort of quick, easy, simple instructions. I endeavor to do that on the radio show because I, you know, I can't give them two-hour instructions. Well, you know, and, and Cormac makes the point, and this is, this is what I have done, is he talks about prioritizing. He says, you know, if you go to U.S. CERT and look at their their rules for, like, proper security, it's pages of, of do's and don'ts. But, for example, my number one thing is do not click on links in spam. You yes. know, number yep. one. Yep. So if, if you ignored everything else, do not click on links in spam. I would argue that's probably the worst thing you can do. And so, so then... If you created a hierarchy, you know, and, and so if you if that that's a simple, clean, clear rule. Now, then the, the, the question is, well, what about links from Aunt Sarah? Right. Oh, you want to well, hear my rules? This is what I do on the radio show because you have to codify it. And and people get mad sometimes because I don't give them shades of gray because you can't give them shades of gray. You have to say, do these five things. To me, number one is run Windows update automatically religiously because even if you continue to click links if you're not vulnerable to the exploits you're going to be protected so number one windows update number two don't click links in email or uh you know in instant messenger number three don't open email attachments that's become lower down on the thing because that's on the list because that's no longer a common vector of viruses used to be number one email attachments but less so now Right, but I, I extend that now to say don't. And by the way, the true, as you know, the true uh, rule is do not open executable attachments. Huh. But of course, most people can't tell. Right. So you can't say don't open executable attachments. You just say no attachments. Uh, I also say don't accept files from strangers, and that may be on Facebook from peer to peer. You know, links, links, and files are the, are the really the deadly vectors these days. Right. That's where your yes. viruses get in. Um, and you know, I think those are simple enough that people can remember, you know, I should add, make good passwords and stuff like that, but those are simple enough that I think people can remember them and act on them. Would you add anything to that list? I think, no, I I think you're right. I think in terms of a hierarchy, I think that, that that's, that's the minimal behavior for, for people being safe and, Everything beyond it, you know, the, 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 the content of this podcast for the last four and a half years are, you know, looking more closely, dissecting threats, understanding them. Um, but but I, I like this for our end of the year topic because I really do think that there's a very good point, And that is that the arguably that that comeback of, well. How likely is that? Yeah. It, it's, it's probably not that likely. Now, arguably, links in spam? Ooh, you know, <laughs> you don't want to go to, you don't want the universe to fork and take you down that road. Um, clearly wrong. Um, phishing attacks? It, well, we know they happen. Um, but, but then, again, it's easy to get over paranoid. That is, you know, do I am I happy when I lose my credit card when it when it gets loose because you know I've I've used something other than PayPal, you know? No, I'm not happy. 
but I'm protected. I get another one. Life goes on. And, you know, there's some cost to me, but I was pretty much indemnified for, you know, well, I was completely indemnified for, for that. And so, you know, that's the case with most of this kind of online fraud is users are safe. Now, losing your identity, getting your machine all mucked up with stuff, you know, that costs you time and trouble and annoyance. Um, and it's happened to most of the people who are neophytes. I've looked at their machine. I've tried to figure out what they did. Typically, they clicked on a link in email. That did them in. So I really think, you know, that's the big bullseye. And everything else is interesting, <laughs> theoretical, right. worth worth discussing. Um, We're but- not saying, and somebody in the chat room said, Hartwell said, well, I guess this is the last security now ever. <laughs> We're not saying... That you, it's, you don't talk about it. The people who listen to this show want to know all the other stuff. We're talking about what do you tell mom? Yes. W- w- you know, we're discussing the science of Internet security. You know, the, you the, know, the, yeah, yeah. the science and the technology and the practice. And, and, well, and it's from that that we're able to distill the most important things. And, and that inherently means there's going to be some least important things. Some things that are that are less likely to happen, and certainly, our listeners want to know about you know, parsing a URL and being not caught out by something that might be strange. Most people just like oh, don't confuse me with all that. I just want to you know <laughs> buy my donuts and go on. <laughs> I love it. So the rational rejection of security advice. It, Sometimes it is, it is rational. It is rational, and it is arguably in in many users' best interests. Because, see, the other thing, Leo, is for us listeners of this podcast, these things are not expensive. I, I know I do look at the URL. Right. right. Uh, that's part of my experience of using the net is looking at the URL, checking the URL of a link that I'm hovering over before I click on it. It's inexpensive for me to do that. It is not inexpensive for mom to do that. Right. Because she doesn't really understand it. And that's the problem. We're giving people rules to follow. We, you know, we make the rules. We understand. We are, you, I, and our listeners understand why and where they came from. Instead, we're imposing conduct on people that just sort of they don't really understand where it came from why they're being asked to do that well what is this url you know so it just makes them anxious and uncomfortable it makes them you know itchy and they're not happy and you know we might as well have people who are probably going to be okay and happy then you know maybe not that much safer anyway and miserable Steve, I think this is a great episode to hand around to your friends and family. And uh, maybe someday we'll write a little pamphlet. That uh, There must be something like that out there that's, you know, just, you know, the basics. What you should do, what you need to know, how to protect yourself. In 99% of the cases, the other 1%, you should be listening to security now. <laughs> GRC.com is the website. You can go there right now and get a 16-kilobit version of this show for the bandwidth impaired. Steve also pays to get transcripts done. Um, great Elaine Ferris writes those up and so you can read along as you listen he also has a whole bunch of great free programs security programs there and the flagship of the operation the great Spinrite a must have 
hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. If you don't own Spinrite, go get it. GRC.com. Happy New Year, Steve. Happy New Year to you. We're plowing into 2010, and I'm sure we're going to have lots of fun and adventures for our listeners. 2010, you know, that's the year we make contact. I'm ready. Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm, <laughs> way, I'm way more than ready. <laughs> it's about time. Yeah. All right, Steve, we'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.